Our speaker today is Bill Miller, who has written an amazing book on the Christian history of Texas. You cannot find this in any bookstores anywhere yet. And I asked Bill Miller to come and speak to us today. Bill and his wife Sherry head up a ministry called Makeaway Ministries. They help people get out of debt. They help people get control of their credit cards and deal with creditors that maybe are abusing them. And they have pastored in Miami, Florida. And Bill originally is a native of Dallas, Texas. And it's my delight to present to you Bill Miller. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for what you're going to do here. Father, there are people sitting in this room. I've already had one person speak to me, and I have seen others in the room that I know that you have something special for today, God. You're speaking to them in a special way. And I pray, Father, that as we discuss the history of Texas and what you've done here, that that word would come to each person individually, God. It's not one word that goes to everybody, but each person, you have the ability to speak to them, God, and I pray that that would happen today. In Jesus' name, amen. That would be helpful. What time do I uh, have to stop? When the people leave, or is there an official time? Two. Well, I can probably beat two. I, this is not exactly preaching because I'm going to be talking about history, and it doesn't quite fit a preaching format. But, <coughs> man, I'm also not used to being up here talking. So we used to do a lot more talking than we do lately. But in any event, um, I, I, I wrote this book. It's called, as Alan mentioned, The Influence of Christianity on Texas History. And I'm going to tell you how I came to the book. I really appreciate that he's sensitive even to know that I wrote the book. You know, I don't go around saying, hey, I wrote a book. You, you want to read it or anything like that. It comes up in conversation. There are people here in Granbury that know that that I wrote the book. But <clears throat> what I see with Alan is that He's interested in seeing that the members of Generations Church get influenced or get um, input from all different levels of Christian thinking and Christian experience. And that's good, you know, because you could have the same guy standing up here preaching every week, and that can get old. But you never know what you're going to run into when you come to Generations Church. It could even be you sometimes. It could be somebody else, and today it's me. We've, um, we came to Granbury and... Uh, in September of 2012, and uh, Sherry's from Miami, and I had lived there a long time. We had ministry there. <clears throat> God brought us here sovereignly. That's a different story for a different time. But here we are, and uh, when we came to Granbury, we didn't know exactly what we were going to be doing. We had our ministry of counseling, and we figured God was going to be changing some of the things we're doing, and he has. We're doing less counseling and more, um, well, more writing. <laughs> that's, for, that's one thing. Um, which is what we thought when we came out here. Um, we love Granberry. I don't know about it, rest all you folks here, but it, there's two of us in this room that love Granberry. And we came here, I'm sure most of you do. When we came here, we said, well, we want to meet people who want to get involved in things. And so <clears throat> we got involved in the Ministerial Alliance, and we also got involved in an organization called the Texas Heroes Foundation. That was one of the first things we did. It just happened. We didn't know anything about the Texas. Well, we didn't know anything about either one of them. Somebody told us, why don't you go down and see if they'll take your parachurch ministry in the ministerial alliance? Because there was a question at the time about whether we could even get in, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah, come on in. 
And that same person said, well, you should check out the Texas Heroes Foundation. Anybody ever heard of Texas Heroes Foundation? They're the organization that have put on the, the celebration for Texas history around March the 2nd, because Texas Independence Day is March the 2nd, 1836, right? So we had a parade and we had different things, and the purpose of that organization is to connect children to Texas history so that they don't forget it. So, you know, they don't teach it in school like they used to. When I was in high school over in Dallas, you were required to study and read a whole big book on Texas history. I don't know if they still do that or not, but uh, history's always been a big deal in Texas. I've, I've lived and traveled all over the world, really, but certainly in the United States. And I don't know of any place that reveres history as much as Texas, except maybe Virginia and a couple of other places. History has always been important here. We got to talk about the Alamo, and we got to talk about uh, Sam Houston and uh, Davy Crockett and James Bowie and all the heroes, and that's all good stuff. So <clears throat> when we got involved in the Texas Heroes Foundation, all, mo almost all the people, there was only a couple of them that I can think of, the 40 people or so that were involved in Texas Heroes Foundation, there were only a couple of them that, that I thought might not be believers. I didn't go ask them, but, you know, you can tell usually who believers are by their fruit, how they talk and what their interests are. And uh, so I saw as we discussed in the Texas Heroes Foundation that it was pretty much that same secular history that I had heard when I was in high school. And I began to ask, well, do you get into the connection of that history to God? What, what, what part did God play? in the history of Texas, and, and nobody could really connect those two things together, you know, because I figured God's eternal, right? He was he was around here when Texas history was developing. He must have played a part in it. He plays a part in everything else we do. Why wouldn't he be a part of Texas history? But nobody seemed to know where to go. I even asked, well, <clears throat> where where could I go to find out? Is there Are, are there any books written about the influence of Christianity on Texas history. I'm really interested. If I'm going to be in this organization, I want to see God in it because I won't be here very long, not not because it's bad, but because God's called me to do something for the kingdom of God. So I started to make a, my own study, and I went to the Internet. If we could put those charts up there, that's the title of the book. This is the book, Alan, you had it a minute ago, right? I have it for sale out here, and I wanted to clarify it's $15. Every dollar that we sell of this, it doesn't go to me. It goes to our ministry. So just to clarify that, uh, a lot of nice people bought books in the first session, and we covered part of what what's here in the first session. We're going to cover, cover another part in this session, and then there's a whole other part that we don't have time for. So um, probably this is jam-packed with facts and things and interesting things, but this is history in the context of Christianity. I haven't read very many books that way. It, the context is Christianity. So let's go to the, <clears throat> the next slide. I have to repeat a couple of things that I did in the first service. But uh, when I went on the Internet, I put in those keywords that were on that first chart, which is the title of this book, The Influence of Christianity on Texas, to see what would come up. I had no clue. I had no idea. I had no connection in my mind between Texas history and Christianity that I could call on that I that, that I knew about <clears throat> what popped up when I went into Google was the Texas Almanac I looked in the Texas Almanac and in the Almanac I put in similar words doing a search within Texas Almanac and here comes up this 
clause right here, which is from the Texas Declaration of Independence that was written <coughs> on March the 1st and March the 2nd. It was presented to the Congress on March the 2nd, 1836. And I don't know if you know, but the Declaration of Independence for Texas is a list of complaints. It, basically what it says is we're declaring independence for Mexico because you did all these dirty, nasty things. And it lists these things. Well, complaint number 16, when I read this, I knew that I was on the right track, that there was something to find out there. And it reads, it, it there is the Mexican government, it denies us the right of worshiping the Almighty to the dictates of our own conscience by the support of a national religion calculated to promote the temporal interests of its human functionaries rather than the glory of the true and living God. That was, that's 1836 writing to say that they were upset because they didn't have religious freedom and they were upset about it. Just so you know what they're talking about, at the time Mexico had mandated Catholicism as the national religion, and so they were not allowed to worship any other way than in the Catholic way. They, unfortunately, for for Mexico, they didn't have any priests up here, so there was, you know, there was there was a shortage of priests, and a lot of things happened. There was nobody to marry the settlers that were coming into the state, to the territory it was at that time. But anyway, um, it was a freedom of religion religion issue. And so I knew I was on to something, and then I, I began to look around. Well, I went to the next meeting of the Texas Heroes Foundation, and I read this to the group. And I asked them, and these are in our city here, in our county, a lot of the folks that are sitting in that room, some of them are, are city councilmen. I'm not naming any names. Some county uh, commissioners, is that what you call them? We have in that little group there some people in the community that we would call leaders. And I said, as I read this in the group, has anybody, did anybody know that that was in the Texas Declaration of Independence? Everybody looked at each other. Does anybody here know that was in there? Nobody in the first service. We have one. Anybody over here? Two, three. Y'all are smarter in this service. Huh? Yeah. Oh, but there was zero in the first one. Okay. So, now here's a major thing. Here's a complaint. A complaint in the history of Texas that people fought for, died for, left their blood in the ground for, fought in the Alamo for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most people don't know that's there. And so I decided, well, I think people should know it's there. And I think that they should know that in addition to our heroes, and they're all important, this is part of our heritage. This is part of the heritage of Texas, that people fought for the right to have free religion. I'm not anti-Catholic here. I'm just saying there's something important about having the right to, to worship God as you want to or not to worship him. God says you have a right to choose. You can choose life or death. He says, I suggest you choose life. But you have a choice to make. You can choose life or death. To these early colonists or settlers who came to Texas, they didn't have a choice. Now, Protestant uh, clergy came across the border, and, uh, you know, they got arrested quite often um, because they they would have Bible studies and home meetings and all different kinds of things. That's, that's also part of the history of Texas. 
in the let's 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 see what that next chart is. One of the points that I want to make, in in, in fact, the, the the basic point of this book is that God has a plan. God has always had a plan. He's had a plan since the beginning. The plan that he has at any moment in time is the best that he has to offer. The best that he had to offer at that time was the Garden of Eden. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, you'll see where God blessed the two people and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule everything on the earth. And then in the uh, verse uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he said, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So he was supposed to take care of the garden. That's part of his job. The other part was to uh, fill the earth. Do you see where it says fill the earth? Fill the earth. to take. For me, my interpretation of that is to take the garden and fill the earth with the garden, to expand the kingdom of God until it fills the whole earth. That was God's purpose, and he had a plan to do that at the time. Alan mentioned in between services, and I want to agree and make that point. God's purposes don't change. God doesn't change. If he had the purpose to fill the earth with the kingdom of God in the beginning of the word, he still has the same purpose. The plan we're working with today doesn't resemble the plan the way it started out because human beings are imperfect, right? And so as we go along, God takes the perfect plan and he adjusts it. Adjustments don't bother him because there's nothing that we can do to keep him from achieving his purpose. He just changes the plan, and we go this way instead of that way. So what's the next chart look like? That's, that's a key point. And Texas was part of the developing plan over the years. And, and in order to get from the book of Genesis to Texas, let me tell you that there were, <laughs> there were three major things that happened to cause God to alter his plan. One was the sin in the garden. Man disobeyed, and so he got kicked out of the garden, and the plan to, for Adam anyway, to spread the kingdom of God over the entire earth was had to be changed because they disobeyed. So now what? Well, things progressed for a while, kept going on. There's a long story about what happened there. I'm, I'm not going to get into that today. That's not my purpose. But finally, God got to the point where he said, the people here are, are not worth me keeping, so I'm going to cause a flood. God caused the flood. I didn't emphasize that in the first service. God brought a flood on the earth and killed all life except for eight people. At, um, Noah, his wife, uh, three sons, and their wives, eight people. Eight people were left over to, to, re, to refill the earth, I guess. And he told Noah the same thing that he told Adam. Go and fill the earth. He gave, if you look in Genesis chapter 9, you'll see that whole mandate is given to Noah the same way that he gave it to Adam. He blessed them the same way he blessed Adam. Bless, another meaning of the word blessed means to empower. He empowered them to go and fulfill his purpose. That's what God's doing with blessings. Grace is all about empowerment so that we go to fulfill God's purposes, not our purposes, but his, right? Everybody with me? Can you say amen once in a while? Makes me feel better. Thank you. Thank you for those three wobbly amens. Pardon? I thought somebody said so. Um, so God has a plan. 
and uh, it the, the the purpose never changes. Now, here comes the flood. Uh, that caused a major change in the plan. It caused a major change in the climate. It caused a major change in uh, the continents because the continents started to split up 300 years later. By the way, I mentioned in the first service <coughs> that I went to the um, Creation Evidence Museum down in Glen Rose. Anybody been there? That's a real interesting place to go. Well, I got to meet uh, Dr. Ball. And, in fact, Dr. Ball came and spoke at our um, Ministerial Alliance a few months ago. And and, and, he, and it was very helpful because if, if, if you know about your Bible, you know that that according to the Bible, approximately 6,000 years have passed from the Garden of Eden that we're talking about to get to where we are today, 6,000 years. But historians and geologists and archaeologists and all those people talk about millions of years. And so this whole book is based on God carrying out his plan in 6,000 years. It's based on the Bible. So I forced everything to fit that. Now, I, I didn't force it, but what I looked, did was look in the Bible and find the the confirmation in the Bible that forced it to conform to the 6,000 years because I believe God. I believe the Word. How about you? I believe the Word is right. It's complete. And if it says 6,000 years, for me, that's enough. I, I don't know. There may be some other meaning out there that I don't know about, for, but for me, 6,000 years is fine. So um, <clears throat> 300 years after that flood, that flood occurred, according to Jewish history, in about 2500 B.C. Okay, so that means the garden had gone along for 1500 years. There's a big old flood in 2500 B.C. Everybody's wiped out, but there are eight people left. They start to uh, procreate, and we have population that builds up. 300 years later, that's all it was. Jew the Jewish writings have it exactly 2240 bc is the tower of babel <clears throat> god had said go out and spread the kingdom of god over the entire earth but what happened the bible says the bible says that all human beings on the earth were in babel working together to build a tower right does it say that i'm not making this up it says all people on the earth were there building that tower god says i told you you're supposed to go out and spread this kingdom over the entire earth. You're not doing what I told you to. You're not serving my purpose. You're serving your purpose. Any time that my purpose is not in agreement with God's purpose, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get a spanking, and either I conform to his purpose or he's going to be working with me for a while, which has happened. It's happened. Preach it right. Well, what happened to all those people? God changed all their languages. That's why we speak. I don't know how many languages there are on the earth these days, but there's a lot of them. And some of us have trouble English, you know, much less all the, all the languages over the entire earth. Very interesting thing that came to me the other day is that how did God split up the people? He could have done it a whole bunch of different ways. This is something I didn't think about in the first service. Because I like to harp on being careful about what we say because a lot of times what we say is what happens in our lives. If we get too negative about saying things to other people or over other people, um, if, if, if we're speaking negatively, negatively to our youth, if we say negative stuff enough, they're going to become negative. They're, 
they're going to manifest the negativity that we're speaking over them. So notice that God, when he decided to divide them up and spread them all out, what did he do? He changed the way they speak. And they couldn't all speak so that they could understand each other. And they just started out. It was a supernatural scattering caused by a change in the language. I don't fully understand it, but I know that the scattering was supernatural. God sent them out. The Bible says that when the scattering was in effect, that those people who had all, all the people on the earth had been consolidated in that one area, <coughs> Babel, which is in Babylon, <coughs> the Bible goes on to say that those people were scattered to all the parts of the world, all the parts. And that includes the new world where we're sitting today, the new world. Um, you know, it was that world over here outside of Western Europe. Uh, so it, we, we've been dubbed the New World, and Texas is sitting right here in the exact middle of that New World. I don't know if you know that. If you look at it geographically, we're right there. And uh, <clears throat> so those were the major adjustments that, that were made to God's original plan. Now, yesterday we celebrated um, the 239th birthday of the United States of America. And uh, Texas was the 28th state. It was brought into the Union. It had, it had been invited in um, 1844, finally managed to get itself together and come into the Union in 1845 as a 28th state. Um, In the first service this morning, I talked about Columbus. Um, I just want to give a couple of highlights because I don't want to go back over all that stuff we did this morning. But Columbus was a Christian. When I got into the Internet, I found out in his writings he's a devout Christian. Somebody came up and asked me, well, between services, wasn't he Jewish? You can find that on the Internet, but I don't think it's true. According to his writing, he was a born-again Christian. He was Catholic, but he was a born-again Christian, and he... uh, he knew Jesus, and he believed that he was called by God to do what? Guess what he, was, what he thought he was called to do? Go out and spread the kingdom of God to the entire world. That's what he set out to do. It took him nine years of presenting propositions or proposals to the king and queen of Spain and the king of Portugal till he finally got an agreement for the funds that he needed to go make that first voyage. Everybody was laughing at him because a lot of people thought that the earth was flat. He said, I'm not scared of that. I'll be able to come back. Nobody had ever in the history of the world gone out to this part of the world in a boat and been able to go back to where they started from. It had never happened before. He was confident that he could do it. I submit to you that only a Christian could have that confidence. A Christian who had looked at the word and, oh, by the way, That was in 1492. Finally, the king and queen of England, Queen Isabella, came up with the money. How did they come up with the money? Very interesting thing to me because there was an 800-year-old war that had been going on uh, in Spain. 800 years. You know how long that is? We haven't been here that long. 800 years is a long time. The Moors had been in Spain. In 1492, January of 1492, that war came to an end. Suddenly it came to an end. And that was like Columbus was there. He was, he was there asking for money. And the queen said, well, wait a minute. They confiscated all the Jewish properties um, and a lot of other property in Spain. And so suddenly there was money that 
came into the coffers, and they were able to fund the uh, Columbus's proposal. So he comes over here. He came over four times to the New World. He never came to Texas. He never came to the United States. He went to the islands. He first went to Hispaniola, which is the island that has um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic today. That was his first stop. But he went to a bunch of islands over there. He discovered Indians. He called them Indians because when he first got there, he thought he had, you know, he'd gotten to the Far East, and he thought he was an Indian. So he called them Indians. And that stuck. That's an official word today. Um, some people don't like that word. You'd rather be called Native Americans. I understand that. Um, because technically it's not true. They're not. But, but it is a word. If you go to the dictionary, it's in there. And uh, <clears throat> so the, the thing is, and what we talked about this morning, is when Columbus came, there were a bunch of Indians in the islands, and it turned out they were all over North America. Well, here's the deal. In order for this whole thing to hang together and be based on the word, those people that were scattered in Babel are the people who were able to come across to what we call the New World, to North America and South America, as the continents were splitting, because that's when they split, 300 years after the flood. The pressure of the flood caused weakness in those continents. This is according to Dr. Ball, not Bill. This is Dr. Ball. Those continents begin to split. Well, before they split, and before the land bridge between Russia and uh, Alaska disappeared, those people that were scattered supernaturally by God, he sent them here. People that came here were sent by God. That's my, um, my position. They weren't here accidentally. They didn't come here because of buffalo. I mean, they might have followed the buffalo. But they were sent because God's plan is to spread the gospel to the whole world. First, he sent the people. Now, the process of getting the gospel to the people, you know, that's, that's the rest of the story. But the people <clears throat> had to get over here. So what I wanted, want you to know about Columbus today is that, according to his writings, he was a Christian, a born-again Christian. He already knew the world was round. Uh, in the book, I discuss how it was even possible that Columbus could read a Bible because if you remember, just prior to that, it was illegal for anybody to read a Bible. You couldn't have a Bible. And uh, in 1517... Uh, Martin Luther, when he tacked up his uh, notices there on the, on the uh, what's the name of that uh, church over there, Wittenberg, uh, that was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And f after that, then you had Bibles. All of a sudden, Bibles were being revised and printed, and uh, suddenly uh, uh, there was access to Bibles. Be but before that happened, is when the Bibles are made available. I, I, I submit, I, I don't think there would have been a Reformation maybe if those Bibles hadn't been printed going back to John Wycliffe and all of that. That was in the 1300s that all of that happened. The end of the Dark Ages came. Suddenly people had access to the Bible. Columbus knew. How, how was he a Christian? How did he write the book of prophecies unless he was a Bible reader? Um, it's a very interesting book. It's hard to read, but um, anyway... He was a Christian on his fourth voyage. He founded a colony in Jamaica. The governor of Jamaica, 25 years later, in 1519, I don't want to give a bunch of dates because it gets too dry. Some people's history is a little bit dry, but I'm not a historian. Did I say that? I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm a minister, but 
I like history, and seeing them connect like this is exciting to me. Uh, the first guy to ever see Texas came from Jamaica. He was ordered by the governor of Jamaica to come here and find a passage through to the Far East. He didn't find it, but he found the whole Gulf coastline, and he drew a map. I call him in the book the map maker. His name was Alvarez, and he drew a map, never got off his boat. He came over, drew a map of the entire Gulf Coast, and without leaving his boat, he got killed anyway by some Indians that somehow got on his boat, and he never made it back to Jamaica, but his map did, and now we have it. I'm told we have it in Austin. So it's, it's, it's amazing all the things that God did in order to get the purpose working here in, in the state of Texas. Now, I also mentioned that after Columbus, um, the conquistadores came here. They're called the explorers or whatever. There was four main ones that came here, Cabeza de Vaca and a couple of others. The main one that influenced Texas history is the guy Cortez that went to Mexico. He never came here, but he had a big influence on Texas history because he introduced Catholicism. He introduced the Spanish language, um, you know, and built Mexico City. So that's three major things that impacted us. That was in, he went to, um, he went to Mexico in 1520. Now think, think about this for a moment. Cortez went to Mexico in 1520. That map maker had come in 1519. 1520 is 100 years before the English-speaking colonists settled on the east coast of the United States, Jamestown, uh, Plymouth Colony, Pilgrims, and all that kind of stuff, 100 years before. Texas history goes back all the way back to that because the first conquistador that came to Texas came in 1528. I didn't mention him this morning. His name was Narvaez. He's the first guy to set foot here and to, well, that's a long time ago, you know. That's, how many hundred years ago was that, y'all? 400? 500? I don't know. Anyway, we, we forget that there were people here before the English-speaking settlers came to the state came to this territory there was a lot going on here there was indians here and then you know europeans came but they were spanish the spanish were here for 300 years before settlers came so we have a unique history in texas we have a unique history where we have uh, spanish architecture uh, even our agriculture the saddle that the western saddle that we look at now that the origin of that western saddle is the middle east you know what a hackamore is Anybody know what a hackamore horse radio? You know what a hackamore is? You know that it came from Persia? That the design of a hackamore came from Persia? Guess where Persia is today? Iran. We have Iranian roots in Texas. But, but a lot of, a lot of influence, architectural influence, um, certainly the, the Spanish language influence, um, all of that influence is a direct result of what's happening in this time period that I'm talking about. We are a unique part of the United States along the southern part of the United States that was impacted by Spain. It, there was a colony over in Florida, and there's a, a Hispanic heritage over there, but it comes all the way down and across, not so much in Louisiana, but all across this part all the way to California. It's a tremendous history that's different than the rest of the country that we ought to celebrate I, you know, really. I mean, there are very few states around here that have missions. 
the state of Texas had uh, up to 27 missions that were built by um, the Catholic clergy, the Franciscans, that were the other group that came here that I talked about this morning. So you had Columbus, big development. You had the conquistadores that came next. They were mainly looking for gold, but they were also protecting the Franciscans. The Franciscans came here. They built 27 missions. The purpose of those missions was to introduce Christianity to the Indians. Um, a lot of people forget that. Why are those missions there? Why was, why was Alamo built? Well, it was a Spanish mission built in, um, I think I have the exact date here somewhere. Anybody know when the Alamo was built? 1728, I think, something like that. So, yeah, it's old, and it's not the oldest one. The first two missions were built in 1682, something like that. So what I want to talk about in this service more than than that, what we've already talked about in the first service is, is how Texas was settled. So we talked about how Texas was first inhabited on this chart and how Texas was, was discovered by Europeans. Um, maybe there were Vikings, and I don't know who, that came over and they actually saw Texas. I don't know. They didn't record it. The first ones that recorded it were, were the Columbus folks, and they came from Spain. Uh, this was a Spanish uh, colony. And now I want to talk about how Texas was settled, and let, let's go through here so I can get you out to Sunday dinner. Um, Mexico took over this territory in 1821, and Spain had had it for those previous 300 years. Mexico only had this territory from 1821 to 1836. Fifteen years is all Mexico was the owner of the territory of Texas. Some, a lot of people don't understand that. There's a kind of a rivalry there with, between the two countries, which there should be. There was a war fought uh, between the two countries, and, um, you know, some remnants of that war are still, still fought about today. But the settlers, here, here, here's the point I want to get across to really understand about how God's hand is on everything. <clears throat> the colonists who settled on the east coast of the United States came there, and some years later, not, not, not too long later, there was what's called the First Great Awakening. Everybody, anybody ever hear the First Great Awakening, right? Millions of people got born again during that First Great Awakening on the East Coast. The whole revolution, the Declaration of Independence, the whole thing that happened after that happened with the influence of the First Great Awakening. What you read about God in our Constitution, what you read about God in the Declaration of Independence, it is said by historians, not by me, that the reason that stuff is there is because of what uh, happened during the First Great Awakening. You realize a couple of million people got saved during that First Great This was a big deal, that First Great Awakening. There were people running up and down the East Coast by horseback bringing the gospel to all those people. Well... Those people had descendants. Those people migrated south. They wound up in the Tennessee Valley, and they wound up in Kentucky and different, different states, different places. Uh, in the War of 1812, following the War of 1812, there was a panic. There was a huge recession. We, we think we went through the Great Recession. This recession was so bad in the period after the War of 1812 that it caused people to start moving west. And they moved west because they 
lost property. They weren't able to pay their debts. And <clears throat> nobody had a had an arrangement with Texas where, you know, your creditors could follow you out here. This is true. And a lot of settlers came here because they had credit problems back east. Truthfully, this fit right in my ministry. You know, if I'd have been there, I would have been helping them. But uh, it's fascinating that when, when you look at the sequence of events, you've got people printing the Bible. You've got a guy nailing stuff on a church to start a Protestant Reformation. You've got people going up to the East Coast and dying and shedding their blood up there to get something started. Um, then they have descendants and they come down to Tennessee. Then they go broke and they start coming to Texas. Well, Mexico wanted to open up the northern border because they wanted settlers to come in and bring money and develop the property. In uh in 1821, there were only 38,000 people living in the entire territory of Texas, 38,000. Hood County has more people than that. That was in the entire state, and the state was way bigger in, in, in the whole territory. There was, You know, if you look at that on the map, it's a big territory. So um, what Mexico did was to start a land-grant program. And so these settlers who had gone broke in the Tennessee Valley saw an opportunity to come out here and make their fortune, or at least, you know, to start up again. And so they came out. Um, Stephen F. Austin, anybody ever heard of Stephen F. Austin, his father of Texas? He was a land developer because that was part of the deal. Mexico set it up, and if he got 300 settlers, I think it was, and he would get a land grant. And I saw on the Internet that what he what he did, what he developed, is the largest land development project in the history of the United States. It was huge because when you add all that land grant together, it was a big deal. And he wasn't the only one. So um, all of a sudden, these settlers start to stream in. They're Protestants. And guess what was going on at this time? Now, I'm talking about 1820. From 1790, I don't like to do a lot of dates, but I've got to give you some. 1790 to 1840 was the second great awakening. Are you all with me? Second great awakening. Millions of people are getting born again, saved all over the country. Those settlers in the middle of the second great awakening are the settlers that came to settle here in Texas. The big settlement move in Texas was from 1821 till about the end of the second great awakening. If you go out and look at historians, they're going to tell you, and I saw this in many places, that the early settlers in Texas were not religious. They didn't go to church. Well, maybe that was because there was 200 miles between churches, or there were four or five Indian hostile Indian tribes that they would have to go through to go to church. Uh, the point is, they were coming out of the Great Awakening, and I think historians are leading us wrong there, that uh, that. There was the same percentage of Christianity in the settlers that you would have expected in the in the group that they were leaving behind, and a bunch of them were were um, Christians. Now I said a while ago, a lot of the clergy came across the border. They came across illegal Protestant clergy to minister to these people. And again, historians want to say, well, they're the ones. It stirred up Christianity over here. No, Christianity was already stirred up. The ministers needed to come over and minister to them. Now, a lot of people got born again after they came over here. But there were, in the book 
I talk about a whole bunch of interesting characters that came across um, the border to bring Christianity to the territory, to bring Protestantism to the territory. Three main denominations were Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists. They're the ones that settled the country. They're the ones that built the first churches. They're the ones that had the first Sunday schools. They're the ones that built the first universities. Uh, and all of this was done by the church. The church is a big deal in the history of Texas, but you don't see it until you read somebody that's interested in it, and then you can find out there was a whole lot of stuff going on. So Texas was settled by settlers who were Protestants who came over here. They were unhappy with the fact that they had to only worship uh, or at least by law, they were only supposed to worship in Catholic churches. Unfortunately, there weren't that many Catholic churches. Um, right in the middle of all of this is another little story. All the priests, the Catholic priests in Texas were recalled to Mexico City. And oh, by the way, the capital of the territory called, it was called Texas Coahuila, right? Am I pronouncing that right? And the capital of that state was in Saltillo. It was 450 miles from Austin to Saltillo. And so if you had to go down for a little congressional uh, caucus or something, you'd have to go by horseback 450 miles to get down to Saltillo. They didn't like that. In fact, that's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. You're too far away. We don't want to have to go that far. And oh, you don't let us worship like we want to. So the land grant program is how Texans how settlers came into Texas. If there had been no land-grant program, the Texans wouldn't, the settlers wouldn't have been willing to face the hostile Native American tribes and the elements and all the stuff they had to go through. It wasn't, uh, but 15, let's see, from 1821 to 1836, Texas declared independence, um, 15 years. And so after 15 years, they declared independence, uh, the Alamo is a big deal. We celebrate that because there was a big defeat. 180 people died in the Alamo, including David Crockett. You know how long David Crockett lived in Texas before he got killed? Two months. Two months. He came here in January of 1836, and uh, he, he made – I'm just going to give you this little bit of history. I don't know if you all like this kind of stuff or not, but David Crockett came here. When he came, he had a choice to make. He could either go to the Alamo and join up with that group because at the time the Texas Army was split, or he could go with Sam Houston. Sam Houston wanted him to come with him. Sam Houston had the Army, but Sam Houston was withdrawn from a lot of places, waiting for a time when he could bring the Army for a decisive victory. So he ordered the garrison in San Antonio to abandon San Antonio and let it go. They disobeyed. Davy Crockett comes in the middle of that, and he has a choice. He can either go to San Antonio and defend San Antonio and the Alamo, or he can go and join Sam Houston. He decided to go to the Alamo, and the reason that he went to the Alamo was because he was a, an enemy of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was the president. He had had political battles with Andrew Jackson, which is why David Crockett came to Texas. He lost his election. Uh, back in Tennessee, so he came, he comes to Texas to find out if this is a place where he can bring his family out to, and gets interested in the in the revolution. And two months later, he's in Alamo, and unfortunately, that was the end of his career. But uh, 
we have five main heroes that we celebrate here in Texas. Um, uh, Stephen F. Austin, David Crockett. Uh, I'm standing up here with the pressure on David. Uh, uh, James Bowie, uh, Colonel William Travis, who was the commanding officer in the Alamo. Um, Sam Houston had, had said, wait, 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 but they didn't wait. And the Alamo fell, Goliad fell, and then Sam Houston fights a battle in San Jacinto, which where the Mexican army is defeated. On the Internet, it is called the most decisive military victory in the history of the world. Did you know that? The most decisive military victory in the history of the world. He beat them that day. I think he caught them during their siesta time. That's what uh, some historians say they were taking their siesta. But um, that happened, and when that happened, then Texas became an independent republic. The whole time they were an independent republic for nine years, they had a problem of economics. They never had enough money to really get things going. Um, that was because, for one reason, there were constant attacks from Mexico. Of course, Mexico didn't recognize their independence, and so... They continually, continually made forays over into the territory and uh, continued to to um, keep them involved in, you know, in maintaining an army and fighting and all that kind of stuff. So Texas needed, the Republic of Texas needed protection. They needed protection for Mexico to give them a time where they could gather to gather themselves together and create some economic success. So they approached the United States to see if they could become a state. The United States says no the first time. Why did they say no? Interesting story, because Texas wanted to come in as a slave state. Now, the whole thing about the slave state stuff and all of that is in the book. I don't have time for it today. <clears throat> the whole country at that time in 1845, which is the end of the republic, was divided into slave states and free states. And many people were afraid that if Texas came into the Union, it would be divided into five states, and they would all be slave states, and then the slave states would dictate the politics of the United States. So Sam Houston, who was the president of the republic at the time, he says, okay, you turned us down, so now we have no choice but to go to France or England to get protection because we need help here. we we, we got to get some help or we're not going to make it. Well, the United States did not like to hear that England would be coming over to protect a big territory like that that was so close to the border of the United States. So suddenly, they made an invitation for the United States or for Texas to come into the Union. It cost President John Tyler his presidency in, in a sense because he couldn't run for re-election. It was so unpopular. It was not popular in the, especially in the free states, for Texas to come into the Union. There was a huge political fight in Congress, divided Congress. People were threatening to have duels and all kinds of stuff were going on. But finally, Tyler got the Congress to pass a resolution which said that Texas could be admitted into the United States. It took Texas the whole next year to get a constitution together and to meet the requirements. But in December of 1845, Texas became the 28th state of the Union. I don't know about you, but that's a big deal for me. It's a big deal that we became a part. Let me see how to say this. We're the best state in the best country in the world. Is that a, is that a good way to say that? 
And uh, I, it's, it's something to celebrate. We're here July the 5th, July the 4th. We're celebrating the independence of our country. And we became a part of that country. And we're, we're blessed by God to be a part of that country. This state has been blessed. I'm going to end here in just a minute. There's a lot here in the book that comes after this. Texas became the leading cattle producer in the country in a very short time. After that, it became uh, an oil producer, which brought wealth that no other state in the Union has ever experienced, really. Texas has always been blessed economically since it came into the Union, and it was a time when it got into the Confederacy and things went the wrong way. But as long as, it was in, as, long as we've been in the Union, we've been successful. One last story that you may not know. When the time came to decide whether Texas would go into the Confederacy or not, Sam Houston was the governor, was the, uh, yeah, he was the governor of Texas. So this would be 1861. And uh, all of the states that wound up in the Confederacy were making their, their resolutions to secede from the United States. Texas was talking about that. They were in their sessions talking about that. And Sam Houston said, now it's interesting what I'm about to tell you because Sam Houston was a slave owner. Um, And he came to the meeting as a slave owner, as the governor of Texas. All of them had to sign a pledge that they would support the Confederate States of the United, or whatever they were called, the Confederate States, right? Sam Houston said, I refuse to sign that because I think it would be a big mistake economically and otherwise for us to leave the Union. So he, he, is, he was a Unionist. Well, <clears throat> the Congress of the state of Texas didn't like that. And so they kicked him out of office. How many of you knew that Sam Houston was kicked out of office as the governor of Texas because of his stand? Uh, what he was saying is, I'm a slave owner, but I can change. I know when I'm in a good place. And he said, the best place to be is the United States. If we leave, we will suffer grave consequences. And that's what he talked about. And everything he said turned out to be true. Because in the years during and after the Civil War, Texas had a lot of trouble. And I'm not you know, going to get into that today. It took nine years for Texas to go through Reconstruction. Texas was the next to the last state to come back into the Union, which was in 1874. And Sam Houston's prophecy turned out to be correct. We're in a good place, the Union, the United States of America, right? It's a great thing to celebrate. Um, I've enjoyed talking to you today. I have books out there. They're, as I said, $15. Sherry even has a credit card app in her phone. I mean, we're prepared, brother. We're prepared. I really appreciate your attention. I know history can be dry sometimes. I hope it wasn't too dry today. Texas has a great history. Amen? God bless you. Thank you. Just one thing you covered in the first service I'd like for you to mention, the DNA of the uh, okay. Native Americans from Alaska to the Incas. The scattering, remember the scattering, the Tower of Babel, and all the people from the Tower of Babel were scattered out over the whole earth. The Bible says the whole earth. 
Well, <clears throat> when Columbus came, to make a long story short, in the New World, there were native people living in all these places, all the way from northern Canada, all the way down to the bottom of South America, bottom of Africa, Australia, all these different things. How did they get there? Well, they got there as part of the scattering. It was a supernatural event that happened that got them there. But now as years have gone by, um, the scientists have looked at this and what they found. First, they found that the DNA of all of these people, whether it's in Canada with the Eskimos or down to where the Incas are in South America, there is very, very significant commonality in the DNA. They're all related. They're all cousins, right? All of them, with few exceptions. But it, so at first they thought, in, in the first DNA days, they thought, well, where did all these people come from? They, came, they thought they came from Eastern Asia. But now in more sophisticated times, they have found that the commonality, one-third, one-third of, of all the DNA characteristics of all the people from Eskimos all the way down to the tip of South America is from Western Eurasia. Western Eurasia includes Babylon. They are of a Middle Eastern um, orientation. That is their origin, and they're all related. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much. Can we stand? Just want to read a verse from Acts 17. Uh, Paul is speaking to the people at Mars Hill. Verse 26, he's speaking of God, says that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if perhaps they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Wraps up verse 28. Lord, we thank you that we are your offspring. You are our Heavenly Father. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to see one another as fellow human beings to a fallen race in need of a Savior. And Lord, give us the love in word and in deed to communicate that everywhere we go. And thank you, Lord, for allowing us to live in Texas. Amen. God bless you. Go get them, Tigers.